This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a show all about screen culture from movies on the big screen to whatever you're streaming. My name is Eloise Ross and I'm in the hosting chair tonight while Flick Ford is off. It is my pleasure to be back here in the studio. I'm joined tonight by journalist and editor Anders Furs. It's wonderful to be with you on the show, Anders. Thanks, Eloise. Very happy to be here again. Also with me is filmmaker Paul Anthony Nelson, the fabulous former co-host of Primal Screen himself. Hi, Paul. Hi, Eloise. Hi, Anders. I feel like I, I did, like, did Andy Hazel not pick up the phone? <laughs> this, this should be a cultural capital reunion. You are my number one choice tonight. Oh, thank you. Apologies to Andy. <laughs> <laughs> on tonight's show, we'll be sharing an interview with Cerise Howard about Melbourne Cinematheque's upcoming film season, Masterpieces of Ukrainian Cinema, opening this Wednesday at Acme. We'll be reviewing FX's new slow burn thriller series, The Old Man, starring Jeff Bridges and John Lithgow, streaming in Australia on Disney+. And we'll be chatting about Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather in memory of actor James Kahn, who passed away this month at the age of 82. The Godfather trilogy is currently available for streaming on Stan. But first, an interview I pre-recorded with Cerise Howard, a programmer at the Melbourne Cinematheque. Hi, Cerise. You're joining us from sunny Prague at the moment. Is that right? That is correct. That is correct. And uh, I'm in Prague and it is sunny. Spot on. <laughs> Lovely. A big contrast with where we are in Melbourne right now. Um, but you're here to talk to us about a really exciting season that's coming up uh, at the Melbourne Cinematheque this week. The Melbourne Cinematheque has programmed Masterpieces of Ukrainian Cinema, a three-week season that showcases some of Ukraine's greatest films of all time, says the, the description. Each week will pair a production from the USSR era with a contemporary film of the last few years. I should just say here that I am also a fellow uh, programmer at the Melbourne Cinematheque with Cerise, but Cerise has had particular investment in this season, so that's why you're here to chat to us today. I wanted to ask first, when thinking about the double features, why did you go specifically for this structure each week of old and new? Um, I was keen to have a balance of classic cinema, um, you know, cinema that had long been canonised, uh, long understood to belong to the pantheon of great films, as well as to draw uh, attention to some of the great films produced in Ukraine recently and which speak in different ways to the present moment um, and the recent past and indeed projecting into the, the future. Um, it, it's surely escaped no one's attention out there that there is a war raging in Ukraine presently. Um, what might be a little less understood is that the war isn't exactly a new thing that suddenly erupted out of nowhere earlier this year, that there'd been conflict dating back to 2014. Um, and so we've got films that are from the 20th century and dating back to the silent era, uh, dating back as far as 1930 with uh, Dovchenko's Earth. Uh, but then we've also got films that are from this 2014 and subsequent 
uh, era, which do speak to realities and terrible surrealities of, of the present day and, and of recent times, uh, including, strangely enough, what is sort of a silent film from this period as well, uh, the absolutely extraordinary 2014 film The Tribe, which is um, a, a dystopian uh, boarding house for the deaf set um, drama um, in which there is no spoken dialogue or all dialogue is signed um, by deaf actors and non-actors and um, none of it's subtitled um, for, to, to, to very, very profound and interesting effect. Uh, there's no, not been a film like it before or since, really, and I think it's one of the most extraordinary films of this century. Uh, harrowing, but magnificent, um, if also very distressing. What is the experience like of sitting there and sort of being confronted with this silence and this lack of translation? Um, it's singular. It's not that the film has no soundtrack. Um, there are still vocalisations by the actors, just not speech, which is sometimes very distressing in its own right because some people are enduring some things and producing sounds as a consequence. There's also ambient soundscape, but it's just a, a very uncanny experience. Uh, there's something quite... Um, I, I, I get goosebumps just watching the trailer. Uh, I haven't seen this film since uh, 2014. I, I first encountered it at the Kalori Vary International Film Festival in the Czech Republic, where I have just been again uh, at that festival. And um, I, I found it profoundly uh, unsettling, but uh, amazing the, the, to be in an audience watching this film. You know, I was in a packed cinema. Become aware of the audience around you more than with most other film experiences too, because as the audience responds, you, you hear that quite loudly, and that can be anything from nervous titters to gasps to people shifting uncomfortably in their seat. Or um, Yeah, I, I found it a, a, a really profound experience. I know there's something really unique about sitting in a cinema with other people and that sounds like the kind of film that you really couldn't get um, the same experience from or the same sort of, uh, shall we call them, benefits from watching at home maybe alone than, than watching sort of in this dark enclosed cinema, which is what is so great about this season that it's going to bring, hopefully bring audiences together to see uh, a range of cinema from a particular part of the world altogether. Yeah, and, and get, uh, I mean, this, this can't, can't make pretensions or claims to being somehow a comprehensive overview of Ukrainian cinema. It's six films, uh, three pairings of the old and the new, but they're all films that have become, let's say, canonised by the Ukrainian National Film Archive, the Dovzhenko Centre, um, it has a wonderful list on its website of the 100 greatest Ukrainian films of all time. And despite some of these films being very new, they've already been elevated into that pantheon in a way that um, you know, I think people are often reluctant to do elsewhere in the world. People are very timid about declaring a film's greatness. Oh, it needs at least 50 years to um, be declared great or so and then, and then to 
No, you look at something like the, the sight and sound greatest films of all time poll, and the greatest film of all time apparently was made in 1958, and nothing better <laughs> has happened since. You know, it's all a bit silly. So I think there's something very forward-thinking and forward-embracing uh, about um, that sort of approach to canonization, and and so that inspired some of the selections as well, knowing that they had the official imprimatur of the foremost film cultural uh, entity in Ukraine. So you mentioned the the Dovchenko Center and the Melbourne Cinematheque has screened films from them before, um, screened mm. prints and you know organised uh, other films with them. Why is their work and their existence and you know what they do so important? Well, they're uh, a national film archive. They're charged with the responsibility of preserving and making accessible um, national film cultural heritage. Um, Ukraine has basically has just arrived at 100 years of filmmaking history, a centenary. That's part of what the season is celebrating coincidentally as well. And there are films from those earliest days that are missing, um, presumed lost, but might turn up somewhere. There are, are films from those earliest times and much more recent times in desperate need of preservation, of restoration. And the Dovchenko Centre is operating under conditions that are horrific. Um, They're in Kiev. Um, There is a war raging. There are people who work there ordinarily who have had to abandon their post for the time being, maybe indefinitely, have had to flee or some have joined the front line to, to actively uh, engage in resistance against um, Russia's invasion. So it's, um, you know, they, <laughs> we talk here sometimes about how precarious our uh, film cultural heritage is and materials and how archives here are regularly being gutted, uh, staff are being let go, funding heavily reduced. But we're not dodging missiles <laughs> Uh, not literal missiles. So what, what the Dovchenko Center are doing is um, it's extraordinarily important work. Uh, there's attempts effectively from Russia to deny Ukrainian autonomy and sovereignty. And so interwoven with this need to preserve film cultural history, there's also a need to preserve identity and and to perpetuate it and um so uh, I think their work is extremely important. And, and there's a fundraiser, which we've linked to on the Cinematech website, to a particular fundraising project of the Dovchenko Centres um, to restore films from uh, the, the earliest um, of, of times of, of Ukrainian filmmaking. I was thinking uh, that there were some, sounded like there were some similarities with our own National Archive and, you know, recent and also... Uh, long ago films that have been lost or need restoration but of course there is a, a gr- grand or perhaps not so grand gap in the experience of the archives but that sort of is a one of those stories that seems to just be the same around the world in terms of lost history and lost art and lost culture um, which yeah. is what makes these archives so important. Yeah, and it's a race against time because materials deteriorate uh, anywhere, you know, yeah. Ukraine or Canberra. <laughs> so um, a, a few years ago, the Melbourne Cinematheque 
did a whole season of Kira Muratova's work. She's mm-hmm. one of the filmmakers whose film Brief Encounters is going to be in the Melbourne Cinematheque season. Now, I believe that was a 35mm print from the Dovchenko Centre and is it a, a digital version that's been restored by them that is screening in this season? This time round, yeah, it is indeed a, a very new uh, digital restoration yeah. Uh, which the, our friends at the Dovchenko Centre have gone to great pains to ensure is as schmick for us as can be. Um, you know, Cerise, that I love this film. I've told you personally that I'm very pleased it is in the season and I did want to know why this of all of the Muratova films is being screened. Well, uh, you know how it is with programming. You look for ones that fit the bill best looking at the season somehow from a distance and trying to see what will best pair with other films and with the time uh, allocated to us and with the expense of freight um, trying to just keep costs down at the moment because it's a, a slightly difficult period in for the Melbourne Cinematheque it's um so this, this hit fit the bill perfectly a, a brand new digital restoration um, uh, a very key film in her filmography and one that is close to the hearts of a number of us on the Cinematheque Committee. So um, it took a little bit of doing to make sure I could get hold of it, but uh, it it landed pretty readily. So access to materials, sometimes there are just these pragmatic considerations, but this is the right film for the occasion. Um, The the other one I would have been super keen on was The Aesthetic Syndrome, but it's a very long film and hard, much harder to get and would have been difficult to ship a 35mm print to um, Australia under present situation. So uh, I thought Brief Encounters would be just the, the perfect Muratova film and, and definitely needed one of her films there for a sense of, uh, I won't say completeness, but for um, she just needs to be there. You know? <laughs> she's, she's a major filmmaker. Yeah, I agree. I'm very glad she's there. And are there other 35mm prints that we're screening from NFSA that are in the season? There are two films that we'll be screening on our beloved 35mm gauge. Um, The opening film, uh, Sergei Parajanov's Extraordinary Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, not coming from the NFSA but from uh, a local source, um, uh, yeah, which is just one of the most stunning films. Um, the, the opening sequence is one that haunts me, but I could watch it any number of times. It's just um, staggeringly beautiful. And I think actually the first time I saw it, I was in Ukraine and uh, and, and coming to terms with its Ukrainianness because it, to me it hadn't been obvious previously that the director is not Ukrainian. Uh, Parajanov was uh, Armenian, I think, but he was very peripatetic in his filmmaking career. And this film is very much set in Ukrainian Carpathian mountains around the 1860s or so in a particular tribal community. And it is spoken in their dialect and steeped in folklore and Ukrainian customs. And uh, it it is just astonishing. Uh, Like all of his films, Parajanov is a, a brilliant and often persecuted filmmaker. I mean, that's part one of the interesting things here is that these filmmakers of the older generations that we're, we're screening, whether it's um, Parajanov, Dovshenka or Miratova, were all at odds with the regimes that funded their films at different times. So 
Um, much as this is a celebration of Ukraine and Ukrainian film and films made under also the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic, they're not always films that exactly um, met with uh, adoration from the powers that were and that funded them. Um, but extraordinary, extraordinary film. So that's on 35 mil and so is Earth, the, the Alexander Dovshenko film from 1930. And that's coming from Acme's collections, actually. Wonderful. Um, I mean, there's no reason why films that are not approved by their funding bodies or whomever should not be seen. And in some cases, you know, that gives them extra kind of importance, doesn't it? Well, and and these days, you know, this is long after those times, and Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors is considered by the Dovshenko Centre to be the greatest Ukrainian film of all time in its canonical listing. Um, so all, all six of these titles are, are way up there, and, and deservedly so, in, including perhaps the most under-celebrated of them and the closing film of the season, uh, Roman Bondarchuk's film Volcano from 2018, which I, I love and will end the season on. And I think uh, will be a very welcome note of um, humour, still a dark humour, but a bit of lightness. Uh, that doubling of Brief Encounters in Volcano to end up the season will will be a joyous end to a season which will have some heaviness en route. Great. Well, I'm certainly looking forward to it and especially seeing Volcano, which you have spoken up um, already uh, off air to me. So it is going to be a great night. And telling, oh, very exciting that Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors, the greatest Ukrainian film of all time, or the greatest film of all time, should I say, is opening opening the season. Is that what you said, the, the Ukrainian... Um, well, the greatest Ukrainian film of all time, the, um, as per the official canonization mm-hmm. of, from the Dovchenko Center. But I mean, it is it is an astonishing, astonishing film. Yeah. Um, well, that kicks off the season at Acme on Wednesday, July twentieth, um, of what is going to be a great season. And I hope you enjoy your final sunny days in Europe. But I look forward to seeing you there, Cerise. Yeah, I know. Actually, I will just close because I didn't mention Atlantis that Shadows of Forgotten Ancestors mm-hmm. is paired with. So Valentin Vasyanovich's film from 2019 was a myth streaming um, offering a couple of years ago. See it on the big screen. Extraordinary compositions. Um, speaks to a, Rus- a Ukraine of the near future when it has supposedly beaten Russia in the war. <laughs> His new film is in myth this year. So See Atlantis at Cinematech, follow it with reflection at Myth a few weeks later. Happy days. Not happy days, they're both (laughs) quite heavy, but wonderful, wonderful films. Great. Well, I hope that um, they give us a a great opportunity to see a variation on um, some Ukrainian cinema. That sounds excellent. We have been chatting to Cerise Howard a programmer at the Melbourne Cinematheque about the upcoming season masterpieces of Ukrainian cinema. Uh, For information about the program and to purchase memberships, go to melbournecinematheque.org or acme.net.au. Thanks for joining us, Cerise. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. 
The track we just heard was Dead Ground by T-Bone Burnett and Joe Henry, which features over the closing credits of the first episode of The Old Man, a new series featuring Jeff Bridges in the lead role of Dan Chase, seemingly living a quiet life as a widower, worried about the health impacts of ageing. This plot unravels very quickly, though, and the first episode reveals a deep element of intrigue. Chase is not who he says he is and has a buried past that's coming back to haunt him in the shape of a manhunt led by FBI agent John Lithgow. But it's not your typical manhunt. Let's hear a little clip from the first episode. No one here knows that I'm speaking with you right now. There's a good chance I'm violating several laws by doing so, which should earn me a little latitude, does it? No. All right. The second thing, then, is that I need you to go to your car right now. I need to explain to you how I just called you on a phone that you believed was clean and untraceable. When you get to the car, take a look underneath, passenger side, rear wheel well. Apparently, we can match the transponder's location to the location of the phone moving with it, and then reverse engineer the number. That one surprised me. I didn't know that was a thing we could do. I tell you this partly to remind you that you have no idea how different the game is than the last time you played it. That gives us a little hint about the direction this show is taking its characters and its viewers. Anders, you watch a lot of television. What do you think about the way the old man is playing with conventions? Yeah, it's a really interesting one, Eloise. Look, from the title, I think I was expecting Jeff Bridges on a rocking chair on his porch, sort of rocking back and forth, reflecting on his career in the CIA. And what we get is pretty much the direct opposite of that, although it does include this really interesting, melancholy, nostalgic, reflective kind of pace. Um, but it, it, it compares that with a very tense and violent, quite violent um, thriller elements, particularly the second half of episode one. There is a particularly gruelling extended fight scene in a car that I thought was sort of very impressive technically, um, particularly when you consider who's involved, and really sort of ramped up this show. And I thought, oh, okay, I see I see where we're going. Um, you know, because it does start off rather sort of slowly and grimly, and then suddenly it takes this sharp turn and doesn't relent. And I think a lot of that's got to do with the source materials, an adaptation of a thriller book by Thomas Perry. Um, so it includes that really sort of propulsive thriller uh, plot, it combines that with really interesting, I, I guess, reflections from these two, you know, old men in their 70s who, as we heard in that clip, are playing a game that's very different to when they were sort of in their heyday 30, 40 years ago, the game being this sort of slowly unfurling um, story about, you know, espionage and something that happened uh, many decades ago. Yeah, we don't quite know yet. I mean, there's only been two episodes so far. So, Paul, how did you go? Yeah, this this is sort of this. Um, it, it's it's kind of it felt to me like oh, it's the John Wick story, or the Jason Bourne story. But with imagine John Wick or Jason Bourne is 73 years old, <laughs> and the chickens are coming home to roost. It's also got they hint in episode two. It's got a little bit of a 
that maybe uh, Jeff Bridges' Dan Chase went, did a bit of a Rambo 3 uh, <laughs> situation, kind of uh, aiding the Mujahideen and, uh, in Afghanistan in the late 80s and things went sideways. And Yeah, I, I, it feels very post-Breaking Bad to me. And this sort of like elevated, like quote, quote marks, elevated. It's very, you know, it's very portentous. It's very mm. slow moving. It's very kind of, you know, in, uh, very trying to be quite elegant and try elevated and then has, as you say, and as these bursts of violence. Um, I did like how, I did like that they made that fight difficult for him. Like yes. he, he's a 70 year old man trying to fight back because for a while there was like, okay, what's this going to. But yeah, yeah, it felt to me like very much of that post post Breaking Bad type thing. It didn't hold a lot of surprises for me. There was one. There's one moment in the second episode. I was like, "Holy crap!" Mm. <laughs> oh, uh, then then it's yeah, it's yeah. I, I think I know exactly what you're talking. About. You, I have the same response. Yeah, I was same like sort of carpet rug, and then you're like, "Oh." 100%. Like, yeah. oh, my God, they went there? And, I mean, I think this show knows that it's doing that in some to some extent. Like, what you said, And, is about expecting this show to be about Jeff Bridges on his rocking chair. Like, the show knows that, and this initial sequence sort of plays into that, and he goes to see – and you realise why he's doing it, essentially, but you, he goes to see a doctor and he's worried about ageing and um, his – wife died of Huntington's disease. He's, you know, worried about the same sort of thing. He behaves very much like someone who's going senile, but he's not. Uh, Exactly. And that's what I, I really enjoyed that aspect of his performance. You know, he's really playing up this, or at times he plays up this, uh, this sort of doddering old age, but he's doing this very strategically as a sort of, you know, rogue former CIA agent. Uh, So he's, you know, almost playing, playing a game, conning people who he interacts with. Um, and I, I, I find that really enjoyable to watch, that aspect of Bridges' performance. Yeah, and sort of a character study in a sense, and we're going to get more of it. Bridges is great to watch. And I thought of Breaking Bad as well, Paul, because it's sort of going to be about this man who is it's revealed more and more has done these horrific things that we couldn't have even imagined. Although as viewers of thriller and violence, maybe we can imagine what some of them were. Um, but, you know, and that's kind of what Breaking Bad was about as well, watching Walter White do these, you know, mm. subsequently worse and worse or kind of more heinous things as, as time goes on. And we're definitely going to get a bit more of that, I think. Yeah, it's interesting what you were saying before about the performance and about hinting, is he senile? Does he have Alzheimer's? There's even things like there's in the very, it's not a spoiler, it's in the very sort of first scene of the, uh, one of the first scenes in the first episode. But on the fridge, there's a, there's a name that says, your name is Abby Chase. And it's before we know what his name is. So it's like, is his name Abby Chase? Is that to remind him? What he's like, and then sort of like, okay, there's, and then more gets teases. I saw that, and then I forgot about it. Mm. Yeah, very Uh, interesting. Yeah, so they do, you're right, Anders, they do kind of hit the maybe it's him, and then it's like, and it's revealed to be the wife, but then he's afraid of of that. And uh, again, it's, you know, uh, the thing with espionage agents too is so much is reliant on memory and the mind and playing roles and. You never know, and, and knowing what the truth is. And if your mind is failing you, then that is quite a terrifying prospect. And that kind of becomes part of the the intricacies of the plot. I mean, when John Lithgow kind of talks on the phone for the first time with 
the Jeff Bridges character, he says, I can't even picture what you would look like now. But they recognise each other's voices and so we have this kind of sense of recognition. And every, I think every major character, well, I'm thinking of three, I'm thinking of Jeff Bridges, John Lithgow, and then a third character in the second episode are introduced by voice rather before they're introduced by um you know, by their body and, and so by their image. We recognise them or they're introduced to us vocally. Mm. Well, there's a character so far who's only been vocal. Yeah. Well, so. exactly. And and again, there's something interesting about those conversations because they sound almost stilted, almost as if someone, they're delivering monologues at each other rather than interacting. Whether that's done for sort of stylistic effect or will be some plot contrivance that will work itself out, I don't know. Are we'll they all see. in his mind sort of thing? <laughs> I really hope not. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's more interesting than that, but well, I, I don't know, we'll see. It's interesting. Or are um, we giving the writers too much credit, Andy? Well, I... Because <laughs> there there's an exchange yeah, he has with, potentially. It, with the great Amy Brenneman in the second episode over dinner and at one point she's talking about her divorce and telling it telling that story in two different ways and says this comment about what, the villain of the story never realizes they're the villain until mm. it's too late and it's like yeah okay i see you i, know. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're trying to say um interestingly uh so we, we mentioned breaking bad a show this reminds me of weirdly is billions um another sort of mano v mano show that one paul giamatti v damien lewis initially and that also has a very similar extended sequence of sort of plot free cooking with the, right. In that show, there's this great, like, five to ten minute sequence of Paul Giamatti just cooking breakfast. And similarly, in episode two here, we sort of pause everything to watch Jeff Bridges tell this, like, wonderful story about how he knew a guy who communicated entirely through cooking while he's cooking uh, another character, a moon in... Uh, a, a moon? Uh, a meal in their... Um, uh, in her home. I found that a very strange but welcome weird detour in this show it's it's it's, what's interesting about the show is it's it's got this very propulsive story it's telling us this thriller narrative but then it also has these sort of odd little meandering moments such as this cooking scene that Mm. are quite i don't know they add something strange and interesting to the texture yeah flesh out the world and character it's also did hannibal make that cool (laughs) (laughs) the stop to cook something Maybe that, it did. Because, we, you know, yes, we had Vance yes. Mickelson's resplendent, you know, kitchen. <laughs> no one is ever going to beat Mads cooking, though. So, no, like, ever. why would you bother? There must be something else about it. Paul Giamatti is, he gives him a good run for his money in that episode of Billions. Yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah. Interesting. I mean, what about, so I love John Lithgow in this, mm. and I'm typically someone who kind of balks at John Lithgow. He doesn't really? impress me. I don't really... I mean, I I kind of can understand why he's great, but I don't ever like him. Mm. But I love him in this. He's so good. There's something about... I mean, he was introduced in this very kind of like, oh, okay, way where we see what kind of a lovely man he is. But is he really lovely? He's got secrets too. I don't know. There's, I just think he's amazing in this. He's captures my attention... Mm. I love their their current kind of charisma together. There's um, something about the timbre of his voice that yes. really does things for me, and Jeff Bridges. But very, <laughs> it's really interesting. It's it's funny how we've uh, focused on like voice and hearing, but it is really interesting to hear their interactions. These two grizzled seventy year old men. Um, yeah, I a hundred percent agree. I I think he's great in this show. 
Yeah, and he's bringing the full gravitas uh, to this role. There's also, I think this is a this is a show, and and the impression I was left with, like it's it's like a you know, I think it is like a few other shows stylistically that are kind of going around at the moment. It's um, that sort of elevated crime thing. I came to it thinking, it if I'm to keep going with the show, it's the actors that are really mm. doing it for me, and that's the mm. thing. It's it's Bridges and Lithgow. It's Alia Shawcat. She's it's, great. Yeah, so we haven't even mentioned her in a very sort of dramatic role, which I've never seen her yeah. play. And very quiet. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that she's kind of this, you know, gun CIA analyst or FBI analyst who's, you know, owes a, you know, sort of very tied to the John mm. Lithgow character. And, <laughs> yeah, and it's re and Brenneman, of course, and it's very much the actors who are kind of um, sort of powering through. Do so you think they're elevating the material? I think they might be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, no, it's 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 definitely it's definitely a very engaging show um, to mine. But yeah, it's the actors who are, who are kind of take it to that next level. Yeah, and I mean they will keep me watching. That's for sure. Absolutely, uh, I agree. I do. You know, I'm worried it will be one of those things that you're very invested in. Then it finishes, and I'll forget about it the next week when I watch the next five things that come <laughs> yeah. flung up here's, by the Netflix queue. Okay, but you know, here's the thing: I didn't know whether I want to say. I I have this bugbear as an increasingly old man, and the <laughs> fact that everything is a television show now. I have should be should this be a movie syndrome? And mm. I have a little bit of that with this. I mm, feel like interesting. And I know, like we, we've stopped. You know, the, the studios have stopped financing. Giant, you know, uh, those sort of mid mid budget movies now, and it's sort of like I feel like this is one that would have been a mid budget like movie. A, like a nineties kind of thriller, Hell you know, yes. tight two hours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, even I with the same that. pacing and the same yeah, yeah, yeah. sort of character study of these two. As long as they retain the cooking scene, I'd watch it. You're in. Yeah. Look, I'm still going to be sad about the the loss of the mid budget movie, but maybe the mid budget movie is now um, television, and that's okay. Much much longer. This is my thing. Not every story needs to be 10 hours. But then we get, I don't know, we get more time with Jeff Bridges and and I think that's great. I just have to shout out, reminded by uh, our wonderful panellist, Carl, that the dogs, Jeff Bridges' dogs are are great and I would watch it for them, I guess. As they well. are an essential character in this they're, series. They're so well behaved. They're so lovely. I was going to mention the dogs about 10 minutes ago and completely slipped my mind. Thank you, Carl, getting onto all the best stuff. If you've just tuned in, we've been discussing the new series, The Old Man, starring Jeff Bridges and John Lithgow, and it's probably not what you expect it to be, so you can check it out on Disney+. Plus. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Eloise Ross, Anders Furs, and Paul Anthony Nelson. That uh, music was score music from The Godfather, written by the magnificent Nino Rota. The score, interestingly enough, was refused consideration for Oscar nomination by the Academy on the grounds that it was too similar to some of Rota's previous compositions. It was, I guess, but that was part of Rota's signature, and it has come to be considered as one of the greatest scores of all time, written for what is considered by some people as the greatest film of all time. So tonight, in memory of the great actor James Kahn, who passed away last week at the age of 82, or two weeks ago. We want to return to the classic that made him a star. The Godfather stars Kahn as Sonny Corleone, the eldest son of crime family, Don Vito Corleone, Marlon Brando, and follows the family as they deal with 
crime family warfare in New York. We also get John Cazale and Al Pacino as the other Corleone sons, Diane Keaton as Pacino's partner, Sterling Hayden as a corrupt cop, and my favourite, the angel-faced Richard Conti as the respected Don of the rival Barzini family. But there's no point just listing everything great about this. Let's listen to a clip. Hey, what are you going to do? Nice college boy, huh? Didn't want to get mixed up in the family business? Huh? Now you want to gun down a police captain? Why, because he slapped you in the face a little bit? Huh? What do you think, this is the army where you shoot him a mile away? You got to get up close like this, and bing you blow their brains all over your nice cyber league suit. Come in. You're taking this very personal. Tom, this is business, and this man is taking it very, very personal. Where does it say that you can't kill a cop? Come on, Mikey. Tom, wait a minute. I'm talking about a cop that's mixed up in drugs. I'm talking about a, a, a dishonest cop, a crooked cop who got mixed up in the rackets and got what was coming. That's a terrific story. We have newspaper people on the payroll, don't we, Tom? They might like a story like that. They might. They just might. It's not personal, Sonny. It's strictly business. Paul, I knew you would be the perfect person to chat about The Godfather with us. And you've proven that by um, announcing word for word every line in that in the studio just now. So what do you love so much about The Godfather? Just miming it occasionally, missing a word here or there. But otherwise, yeah. Um, I Look, this. Uh, I saw this for the first time. On VHS in 1990, I think the third one was coming out, and I watched this and part two over a summer's weekend um, with the sun kind of uh, coming in through, uh, peeking in through the blinds, <laughs> and my life was forever changed. Um, this is just everything. It's everything you want from cinema. It's, uh, it's, uh, but it's also it's Shakespearean. It's it's kind of it takes this sort of you know, Mario Puzo's kind of best-selling, you know, kind of mob novel. And and we were talking with the old man about elevation. I mean, this is... Coppola just elevates this to something um, operatic and shake, truly Shakespearean. Um, the, the, it's, it's a story of... It's essentially a story of, you know, a king and his three sons and his daughter. And... You know, a, a king who is nearing the end of his reign and needs to pass it on. Um, it's also a story about family and and a, a father trying to hand, like teach his kids a certain moral code and how that all goes wrong for all three of them because of the way they've all been soured by <laughs> American capitalism and the fruits of this. Um, it's the thing. It's as much you know. I mean, the first line is is um, the Undertaker um, Bonacera saying, "I believe in America." And the whole film is about America. It's about what it's about what capitalistic America has about the American dream and how that is actually a nightmare for so many people and how it is soured. Um, you know, it's absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Um, so what better to look at this prism than through the uh, look at that subject than through the prism of the mob? You know the prism of, uh, of the mafia of of an organisation that set out, and particularly, and this is in Godfather Two. This is more uh, <clears throat> pointedly expressed, but it's a it's an organisation that sets out as a benevolent one, and it's and Coppola has said this in interviews. He said that both America and the mafia believe they're benevolent organisations, mm. 
and and that's the thing. And it's like the the, the second film is Corleone. Uh, Don Vito wants to help out his neighbours to stop being shook down by the local loan sharks and mob. And and let's you know, it's about community. It's about kind of. Uh, finding someone you can trust, someone you can come to. You can't go to the cops because you're immigrants. I mean, all those things are kind of expressed by the mob figures in all of their meetings together, that they believe they are benevolent. And, of course, Marlon Brando, to an extent, says, I will do this, but after that it is dangerous. Um, and there's, so you there's get drugs. all that. There's drugs in a risky business. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to give you my reasons. <laughs> <laughs> that was very good, but it is. He did. But it is in that opening scene, and I was watching yes. it again on the weekend. I haven't seen this. I saw. I've seen this film once before. Uh, in undergrad, you know, because, of course, I was a film student and I was like, well, I need to see The Godfather now. Um, And I was so taken by that first sequence, which is this incredible construction of this, you know, internal scene where Marlon Brando is being uh, approached, excuse me, by all of um, these people asking him for favours and then the community outside... Um, having a brilliant day out in the sun and, you know, it's darkness and sunlight, what you can do, what you can tell other people you're doing and um, where you're allowed to do your business and how you have to kind of change everything. And that's all in that opening sequence. And again, in the very final shot of the entire film. Um, I, I watch, I, similar to you, Eloise, I had spent probably a decade since the last time I saw this and then I watched it again in anticipation of our chat and I again was struck by that opening sequence. It's all of those themes, Paul, that you're talking about. Um, you know, the way Brando's character says, you know, to, to one of these guys who comes to him for help, he says, well, you know, you live in, you chose to live in the America of the legal system and, like, rules and when it fails you, now you're coming to me. Um, I, I found that was, like, incredible and that is really what the film um, really speaks to. Also, this idea um, of it being a, a a tragedy, I mean, it's there in the dialogue from what we just heard. Like, that's sort of the turning point, isn't it, for yes. uh, Al Pacino's character. That's when, like, it all sort of falls apart and the slow descent to that final shot begins. Um, I just... Watching the film was always uh, aware of the fact that I was in one... Like, I was in someone's vision and they wanted to say something and they wanted to explore something and they were using film in all of its variety of properties in order to do that. Like, uh, it, it's really obvious, I think, watching this film. That's so true. He has so much control mm. over everything. Even though he felt like he was going to be fired every other day <laughs> and often cried on set because uh, the Paramount brass had no real faith in him because he was a 32-year-old Italian-American director who hadn't had a hit. Um, there's, there is that beautiful uh, control, and he certainly proved himself on this and became the legend. You know, we all now know as Francis Ford Coppola. But there's, there's also, I, th- I think it's so multidimensional. I think this was just another mob movie about a bunch of, you know, toxic dudes wanting to kill one another. It wouldn't be this well remembered, and I think there's, I think there's stuff beyond the stuff this has to say about. America and capitalism and, and but it's also it's just so lived in. And that's one of the things yes, Coppola really yes. adds to it. He he said that I wanted audiences to smell the spaghetti. And that's something that's always even before I'd heard him say that, um, even before I read that quote, it's something that always occurred to me watching the film. You feel like 
you're in it. You feel like you're in, like, I grew up in Glenroy. There was a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of European immigrants, a lot of, and so a lot of my friends are either Italian or Maltese or, you know, and you would go into these Italian households and they're often, you know, darkly kind of lit, you know, all the shades would be down and you could smell the spaghetti cooking from the kitchen. And this is the sort of feel I get when I'm watching The Godfather. And just the, the, the dynamic of everybody, of the family and, the, and, you know, the various kind of people who work for the family and other, like there's, you know, Abe Vigoda's Tessio and there's, of course, um, uh, Richard Castellano's uh, Clemenza and these guys and who have clearly been around the family for years and years and years and have been friends with Vito since the old days and they have this banter and they have this sort of very tossed off natural kind of dialogue. Um, and it just feels so incredibly lived in. And, and I think, you know, Scorsese with Goodfellas and Mean Street, you know, he's sort of captured a bit of that as well, a lot of that as well. But there's, there's, an, there's also, again, this Shakespearean heft and the fact that the Corleones are this big crime family, there is this kind of elegance to it. There's this sort of, we're, we're in the presence of this weird royalty, but it's a royalty built on blood. And, it's true. But again, most royalty is built on blood. I feel like I'm being a little bit facetious, but thinking about this kind of topic, like it's so it lets us spend so much time with them that if I was there, I would know how to behave. You know, you can kind of identify (laughs) how different people are speaking to the to Marlon Brando or to the family and things like that because we see so many of them and, you know, there are so many before a scene will start properly in terms of the story that it's telling, we will see some of the background of each room that we're in and all of these sorts of things, which is really what adds to this. Yeah. I think too what's really interesting watching it again was, uh, and and, uh, speaking to the same idea, Diane Keaton's character is this sort of outsider who's brought into this whole world so we as an audience are brought in with her. And so at first watching it, I was like, oh, well, this is a very clever way for them to get across, yeah, uh, you know, some of the exposition to explain some of, like, what goes on. But then as I watched it, I thought, oh, the way he sort of turns that around in terms of the way the plot develops is really, really interesting. Um, she's far more than just, like, a, a, a cipher, like, uh, for the audience, Um uh, as outsiders, I yeah, that's uh, that was something that I really was struck by. I don't want to finish our conversation without mentioning James Kahn. Mm-hmm. Paul, do you have any thoughts on the man, the legend? Yeah, we, you know, I mean, this was the launch pad of so many actors. Um, you know, this was John Cazale's debut. This was Pacino's third movie, and Kahn was a little bit more experienced than those guys. He had a few films under his belt. He'd actually worked with Coppola before on a terrific little film called The Rain People, mm. um, which listeners should seek out if they can ever find it. Didn't they want him to play Michael? Or they he did, originally... yeah. So the studio... Well, the studio had some hilarious choices for Michael. They wanted <laughs> Mal, um, uh, uh, Robert Redford, oh, yeah. um, <laughs> Warren Beatty, um, all this, and eventually they went, all right, we'll go with Khan. The hilarious thing is Khan's Jewish. Like, Khan is not Italian-American. Um, and yet played Sonny, who is like one of the most memorable, uh, macho kind of, you know, kind of portrayals of this sort of toxic Italian-American sort of masculinity, um, which is weird. Um, as Rob Reiner said, uh, Khan was the, the only Jew I ever saw rope a cow. Um, but, it's, um, but yeah, he's, I mean, it built this incredible career of these sort of um, 
you know, masculine characters. Um, and he's so good. He's always got a sense of humour. And in this film mm-hmm. where you think, yes. oh, you shouldn't, you know, there's no room for laughter, he kind of has that twinkle in his eye. And he, he does. And he has, he has such affection for Michael. That's what came mm. across for me. Like, it's the brotherly love, despite the fact he's quite a hot-headed character um, and quite abrasive in many ways. I Yeah, the way he communicated that with Pacino, I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, he's always looking out for him. Yeah, he's yeah, always absolutely. Kind of, yeah. Um, if you want to have a little Cannes Film Festival, there's quite a few... <laughs> Um, I mean, like, I mean, the, the career is amazing. Like, he, I mean, we've got things like Rollerball in the seventies. They've got uh, Thief, um, mm-hmm. the terrific Michael Mann oh, yeah. film, is is worth a watch. You can also Elf. He's Will Ferrell's <laughs> uh, Earthbound Dad in Elf, and he's one. He's so brings that gruffness and that that gravitas. I feel like I have to mention Funny Lady with Barbara ah, Streisand. <laughs> in um, a very different role. Very different role, <laughs> but you know, definitely worth it. Yeah, uh, the, we watched uh, Eloise and I were just going The Gambler, which mm. was a, is, is also rentable at the moment, um, which is a, um, a Carol Weiss film, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, and super kind of um, significant in the terms of not only his 70s career, but the entire 70s in America and, you know, what films were doing then was so... So interesting. Mm. So you can watch The Godfather along with its two sequels on Stan and it comes highly rated from all of us. And it's nearly time for us to get out of here. Earlier tonight, I chatted with Melbourne Cinematheque co-curator Cerise Howard about the upcoming season Masterpieces of Ukrainian Cinema that opens at ACME this coming Wednesday, July 20th. Head to acme.net.au for film details and information about memberships. We reviewed the new TV series The Old Man starring Jeff Bridges and John Lithgow in a fugitive versus FBI agent story with a dark past somewhere. You can watch the first two episodes now on Disney Plus with subsequent episodes due to stream weekly. And finally, we paid tribute to the great actor James Kahn by revisiting his Oscar-nominated performance in The Godfather, a classic film that celebrates its 50th anniversary this year. The Godfather is available to stream at home on Stan, along with its two sequels, so put aside nine hours and get watching. You can listen back to tonight's show online at rrr.org.au or subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast. A big thank you to Cerise for joining me from Prague to chat about masterpieces of Ukrainian cinema and thanks heaps to Anders Furs and Paul Anthony Nelson for coming in to the studio for our review segments tonight. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 